Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. Exodus chapter 3. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the far side of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face, because he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now, go. I'm sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt. And God said, I will be with you, and this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say to the Israelites, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, the name by which I am to be remembered from generation to generation. Paul, thank you very much for reading to us. And um, again, let me add a welcome to you. It's great to have you here this morning. And it's uh, wonderful to have God's word before us now. And as we look at it together, let's pray for his help. Father, we do need your help this morning as we come to your word. We Recognize that uh, we are slow to listen, slow to understand, and we are slow 
to let it shape our lives. And so we pray this morning that you would help us to be those who do listen, who do understand, and to leave here changed by your spirit at work in us. And we pray this for your glory. Amen. 400 years is a long time. Just to help you picture how long 400 years is, it was around about 400 years ago that the Mayflower was setting sail from Plymouth to head across to North America. It was about 400 years ago that the gunpowder plot was uncovered and Guy Fawkes was in a spot of bother. 400 years, it's a long time. Lots has happened since uh, those events, and as we turn to our reading from Exodus chapter 3, 400 years is the length of time since God last spoke to his people. Over the summer, as Chris mentioned, we are looking at a number of famous stories from the Bible, stories that are often famous in Sunday schools, but in fact are packed full of profound meaning for all ages. Last week, we looked at Joseph and his coat. We saw that God had made a number of um, dreams and visions known to the family. He'd spoken to them very clearly. But since that moment in time, God had not spoken again to his people. And lots has happened in those 400 years since Joseph and his coat. That family has become a great nation, just as God promised. But look at um, verse 23 from the previous chapter, just before our reading. Exodus 2, verse 23 During that long period, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out, and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. 400 years, it's a long time to be a people enslaved. And even though God had warned Abraham many years before in Genesis 15 that it would be 400 years in slavery in Egypt, even so, It is a long time to hold on to the promises of God. We've been seeing across the summer that behind these famous stories in the Old Testament stand three great promises that God made to Abraham. A promise about how he would make um, Abraham's family into a great nation, how he would bless them, and he would give them a home, a land to dwell in. And we've seen how that first promise of a great nation has been at work in those 400 years as this family of Jacob has grown to become a nation in Egypt, but it's those second two promises, a promise about land and a promise about blessing that are very hard to tally with 400 years of slavery in Egypt. And so as the people cry out in their distress, their distress isn't just about their slavery, but also I think about the problem with God's timetable and whether or not he will keep his promises. Just imagine it, generation after generation, uh, young children chatting to their parents over the cornflakes in the morning, born into slavery, their parents and grandparents and great-grandparents born into slavery, and the children asking their parents and grandparents, um, what will God do about these great promises and our slavery? Will it ever change? That's the context for our reading from Exodus 3 this morning. And my guess is that many of us have found ourselves in a similar context in our lives, trying to trust in the Lord. We try to stand on the promises that God makes to his people. We turn to him in 
prayer, we cry out to him for help in our context, perhaps day after day, perhaps even year after year. And there'll be many here this morning who have yet to see any discernible answer to our prayers in keeping with the promises God has made to his people. And after the years have gone by, it is very hard to go on trusting in the promises of God. And so our reading from Exodus 3 is a huge encouragement because we discover that God does hear the cries of his people and he does answer. Moses is out tending his flock in the desert in Midian. It's a long way from Egypt. And verse two, he sees a bush that is on fire, but it is not being consumed, which is a bizarre thing. We probably have seen on our TV screens down in the south of France, lots of wild forest fires consuming trees and bushes. Perhaps even we have seen it with our own eyes on holiday in the south of France. And if, as far as I can tell, at every point when a bush is on fire, it's consumed. It's left as a charred pile of ash. But not this bush in Exodus 3. It's burning but not consumed. And so verse 3, so Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. And what happens next is one of the great moments of revelation in all of Scripture. As God speaks to Moses from the bush, These are words of great glory, but also of great comfort as God breaks his 400-year silence. There is much that could be said about these words, far more than we can cover this morning. But I want us to dwell on three things that we learn about the Lord in this great moment. Here's number one. The Lord is relational. The Lord has been silent for 400 years. The people have been crying out to him, but they haven't seen any discernible indication that he's heard at all. And it would be easy to have a sort of deistic view of God, like a a watchmaker who creates the world and he winds it up, but then he leaves the world to crack on with his own devices. He steps back and watches to see what happens. But look at what happens in verse four. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush. Moses, Moses. You see, this whole burning bush display was all about God grabbing Moses' attention to bring him over to have a conversation, to have a relationship between God and Moses. The Lord is relational. But not just with Moses, because later on in verse 12, over the page, God promises to Moses, it won't just be Moses who makes it to the mountain. Verse 12, end of the verse, he says, when you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. The you is plural, talking about the nation of Israel. Unbeknownst to Moses, his shepherding excursion to the base of Mount Horeb is actually a dress rehearsal for how God will bring an entire nation to that very same mountain very soon after the rescue from Egypt to the very same spot so that they can worship God. This mountain, Horeb, is a place of relationship between God and his people. And I wish we had time to look at the rest of the book of Exodus to see how indeed God does bring his people to the mountain and how he does have a relationship with them. It's wonderful, awesome, scary, and glorious. But the point is, the Lord is relational. 
He is not an absent God, not a distant God who wants nothing to do with his people. He hears their cry and he draws near to them. What about us here this morning? It would be tempting to think that we all need to have our own burning bush experience of God so that we too can truly know him. And actually, it's, it's when we're going through particularly hard times in life when we most crave some kind of experience like Moses of God to help us know that he is real, he is with us, he will get us through. You can see how tempting it is to have a Moses-like experience, but that is to miss the point, I think, of Exodus 3. Because there is a problem with Moses' encounter with God. Verse 5 God says, do not come any closer. Take off your sandals for the place where you are standing is holy ground. And then in verse six, when Moses realizes who is speaking to him, he was afraid to look at God. The Lord is relational, but this whole episode leaves us wondering how we can truly have a relationship with this holy God. Later on, the people themselves arrive at the same mountain and there's more fire, there's more stay away, and there's more fear because the people cannot draw close to God. And so as we think about the Lord who wants a relationship with his people and yet we are unable to draw near, I think the point of Exodus 3 is to make us long for a greater mediator than Moses. And we have one in the Lord Jesus Christ. In Hebrews 12 we discovered that as Christians, we have been brought to a mountain, not to Mount Horeb, but to Mount Zion. And we've been brought to Mount Zion through the perfect mediator, Jesus, whose blood was sprinkled to make us clean. Which means that as Christians, those who trust in Christ, we have perfect access to God now. In fact, we are in a better place than Moses was at the burning bush. You see, we might crave a Moses-like experience, but actually Moses couldn't come close to God. But in Christ, now as Christians, we can draw very close right into the presence of God. And once and for all, we know that we are in a relationship with the living God. He is a relational God, and in Christ, he brings his people close, wonderfully, eternally. It's a wonderful thought heading out into a new week. I don't know what your week will hold for you. It might be a good week or a hard week. It might be full of surprises or just as you planned. It might be a week of rest or a week of stress. I don't know. But what I do know that for those who are trusting in Christ, we face a new week in a relationship with the living God. We are with him. He is with us. And what a joy it is to know that God is not absent. He is not far off but he is with us through Christ by his Holy Spirit. And perhaps we're new to Christian things. You're very welcome amongst us this morning. Just trying to get your head around what it means to be a Christian. Well, at the heart of Christianity is this offer of a relationship with the living God who is relational. That's our first discovery in Exodus 3. Second, the Lord is a promise keeper. Some years ago, Lord and I were on holiday in the south of France. Uh, there weren't any fires that time, thankfully. In fact, it rained the whole week, so there was no fires at all. And um, 
I mentioned this story before, but one day we hired a canoe from a company on a, on a river, and we, we, we had two hours to paddle downstream, and the company promised to come and pick us up at a certain agreed point on a riverbank two hours later. And uh, we successfully made our way down the river to the agreed meeting point in the middle of nowhere. There was no one around. We got to the riverbank, and there was no minibus from the canoe company. Just nothing. The rain was lashing down. It was freezing cold, and we waited for an hour or two, and um, we thought, well, maybe they've just been delayed somewhere, and, but they'll come soon. But after the hours passed, we realized that delay had turned into abandonment, and uh, they weren't coming. And um, it was pretty wretched to realize, not just that we were cold and, and um, actually dangerously cold, but that we were utterly forgotten about. I've told this story before, and um, someone afterwards, um, that the first time, came up to me and asked, well, what happened? Were you ever rescued? <laughs> it's a long story, but yes, I was. But no thanks, dare I say it, to that canoe company. My guess is that for some here today, God feels a bit like that canoe company. He has made promises to us. We've taken him at his word, We've tried to stand on his promises and we've tried to trust and we've cried out in prayer but at best it seems like his responses are delayed and at worst it feels like he has utterly forgotten us altogether. And as delay merges into a feeling of abandonment the human heart so quickly becomes cynical and bitter. We shut down and pull back from the Lord And we wonder, what is the point in trusting in God if he only ever breaks his promises? It's easy to imagine how the people of God felt like that at the end of Exodus 2. 400 years of crying out to God. And so the words of Exodus 3 verse 7 are so important for us. Look at verse 7. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I've come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. These verses don't explain why God allowed 400 years to pass before he acted. There are clues elsewhere in the Bible, but not here. But this chapter, it doesn't tackle the why question, but it does tackle the will he question. And the answer is yes. The Lord is a promise keeper. He has made Jacob into a nation, and he will now turn slavery into blessing, and he will take his people from Egypt home to the promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey. I wish we had more time this morning to trace the story of Exodus to see how God did indeed keep his promise. He did indeed rescue his people from slavery, from Egypt, and he did indeed bring them to the promised land as he promised. And this is such wonderful news because these ancient promises to Abraham are really gospel promises. And Exodus 3 points us forward to the great work of Christ who rescues his people from slavery to sin, who makes us a part of his global eternal people and who one day will take us safely home to the land of the new creation. 
And because God has kept his promises back in Exodus 3, we can be confident he will keep his gospel promises to us now, those who are in Christ. So when God says that one day we will be with him in the land of the new creation and he will wipe away every tear and there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, we might think, will God really do that? There are many here this morning who have wept so many tears. Life seems so confusing that it is almost beyond comprehension that there could be some way to make it possible that we could ever be beyond tears. We might think, how can God possibly fix or somehow sort out the mess of my life now? How could I ever not weep and not mourn? But the promise of Exodus 3 is that the Lord will find a way to keep his promises. He will bring us into that place, that new creation, where we will never cry again. And just like the people in verse 12, there will be a moment for each one of us when we are gathered around, not Mount Horb, but the throne of glory, and we are able to worship the Lord because he has kept every single promise to his people. The Lord is a promise keeper. Exodus 3 shows us his track record. Indeed, when it comes to promises about eternal life, there is a precious one indeed here in Exodus 3. I wonder if you saw it. Look at verse 6, just back over the page. This is God speaking. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Easy to miss it, but in the New Testament, in Mark 12, and afterwards, why not uh, spend some time in Mark 12 enjoying this point, but in Mark 12, Jesus is in a discussion with the Sadducees, uh, people who deny a resurrection, life after death, and Jesus uses this very verse, verse 6 of Exodus 3, to show the Sadducees that when people physically die, they are still alive. He says, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. The point is that although these three men have died physically, yes, they are still alive. And one day in the new creation, we will be able to see and meet and talk with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God is the God of the living, not the dead. And so for all those who have died trusting in Christ, we will see them again. They might be dead physically, but they are alive in Christ. The Lord is a promise keeper. Finally, the Lord is all sufficient. Some promises are easy to keep. If I promise to finish this sermon in the next five minutes, that's not a hard promise to keep, although some of you might already be doubting. But if I promised I could rescue an entire nation from slavery and bring a whole nation across a desert to a promised land, well, you would say no way and rightly so. That's the problem facing Moses by uh, verse 11 of our reading. You see verse 11? But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? How will this promise come to be? Says Moses, I can't do it. Well, exactly. Humanly speaking, he cannot. You might know that Moses has already tried to pull off a mini exodus back in chapter two, 
And the only things he managed to bring with him to the mountain was a flock of sheep. And so when Moses uh, is told to go back and pull off a, a real exodus, he thinks, I can't do it. And he's right. What he needs is someone to go with him who has more power, more ability than Moses to actually manage this rescue. And so the, the success of this rescue all depends on who comes with Moses. When the people ask, uh, who is uh, the God coming with Moses? Um, they want a name. They're really asking Moses, who's with you? Is it really worth following you this time or is it just another failed rescue attempt? And the response that God gives Moses to the who's with him question in verse 14 is both mysterious and wonderful. Look at verse 14. God said to Moses, I am who I am. There's been some debate about what these these words mean uh, without going into all the different options. I think the main point is that God is saying to Moses, he cannot be defined by anything else in this world. Think about how we describe ourselves to other people. Uh, so in my case, case, physically I might say, well, um, I'm shorter than some people and I'm taller than others. Not many, but some. Uh, in terms of time, I might say, well, 100 years ago I was not. Today I am, and in 100 years' time I will not be as I am now. You see, that's how we define ourselves in relationship to other things, other people. But the Lord, he does not define himself that way because he is, he is beyond everything in this world. He doesn't compare to anything. There has never been a time in history when God was not. There will never be a time in the future when God is not. He is eternal forever. Um, he can't compare himself to any king or ruler or power because he is bigger and better than any of these things. He is simply, I am. He has more strength, more power, more wisdom than anything else in this world because he made everything else in this world. Who is God? He simply is. Always has, always is, always will be. He is beyond everything else. And he has a name, the Lord. It comes from the Hebrew word Yahweh, which sounds like the verb to be. Who is with Moses? I am who I am is with Moses, the limitless, eternal, all-powerful God. The Lord is all-sufficient. And in the context of Exodus 3, this means that the I am of history, he's the one who's able to bring the people out of Egypt into the promised lands. He alone has that kind of power. And we see it, don't we? Pharaoh cannot stop him. Many centuries later, when a carpenter from Nazareth declared, I am, we can understand why the Jews were so outraged, and yet they were unable to stop his plans. And so wonderfully, in and through Christ, we see how the all-sufficient God is able to keep his promises. Who has the power to rescue us and bless us and bring us safely to the new creation? Only the Lord only the I am. Let's pray.
But we do confess this morning that so often we find it hard to trust in you and to believe your promises when we look at our lives and our world. So we thank you for these precious words this morning before us from Exodus 3. We thank you for the revelation of your character to us in your word. And we thank you that this week we can be confident that you are with us, that we are yours, that you will look after us, that we are your people, and that one day we will arrive safely into our home, the new creation. Amen.